The views and opinions expressed on my story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of my story, Living with Lupus. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on today, Friday, June 5th, 2020. Today, we'll be discussing understanding inequality in healthcare. Hey, we talked about this a while back, and let's go into it further. So, you know what I want you to do all the way from the United States to South Africa. Grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and to those who are listening late at night, grab your favorite glass of wine. And join the conversation right here on my story, Living with Lubis.
Thank you for joining me. Now, first, what exactly do I mean when I state inequality in healthcare? We're talking about health equity. Now, health equity suggests that ideally, everyone should have a fair opportunity to obtain their full health potential and more pragmatically, no one should be disadvantaged from achieving this potential if it can be avoided. Health disparity is defined as the difference in health outcomes between groups within a population. While the terms may seem interchangeable, health disparity is different from health inequity. Health disparity denotes differences, whether unjust or not. Health inequity, on the other hand, denotes differences in health outcomes that are systematic, avoidable, and unjust. Now, when we're talking about all of this, we have to bring in institutionalized racism, and that is defined as um, differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. Institutionalized racism is normative, sometimes legalized, and often manifest as inherited disadvantage. It is structural, having been codified in our institutions of custom, practice, and law, so there need not be an identifiable proprietor. So, what exactly does this mean in the real world? Consider the ever-expanding geographic footprint of an academic medical center. Do we specifically take into account that parking fees may exceed what low-income individuals can afford? Do we guarantee that all patient care areas in the facility are clean and neat. In the emergency department and triage area, as well as the high-end concierge private rooms, do we identify ways to improve healthcare access by reducing waiting times in all areas of work? not just those areas where persons of means might be, the typical patient clientele. Do the 
older buildings have relative ease of access? Do we guarantee that persons with disabilities can navigate our increasingly complex physical environment? If you would like to appear on an episode of My Story Living with Lupus, you can contact us at mystorylivingwithlupus at gmail.com. Also visit us on our Instagram page and also our website, My Story Living with Lupus. If I have any listeners that are in the healthcare field, um, such as doctors, nurses, administrators, CEOs, I want you to really think about what I am saying. Because this can open your eyes to see if you are dealing in healthcare inequity at your facilities or at your office or at your hospitals. And if you are, make a change and make it better. Now, The authors of the white paper ask, is the allocation of newer facilities or care areas equitable to providing services for all patient populations? When institutions build new wings or buildings, sometimes they house patients with conditions that generate more revenue for the institution in these new facilities. To my listeners, do you remember I've talked about this in previous podcasts? How you are revenue to facilities and institutions and how it is generated. Or finally, when they build that new ambulatory care center, is it accessible via public transportation for persons who cannot afford a private vehicle? These are symptoms of what the experts refer to as institutionalized racism, which is the cornerstone of inequity. Now, the facts. Between 2011 and 2013, 
38% of those in households making less than $22,500 a year reported being in poor or fair health. Only 12% in households making more than $47,700 a year reported being in poor health. This was true even when both groups were covered by insurance. The most affluent 1% lived 15 years longer than the poorest 1%. The gap for women was 10 years, the same number of years that smoking shortens life expectancy. Low-income adults are more than three times as likely as affluent adults to have trouble with the activities of daily living. Chronic illness makes them too sick to eat, bathe, or dress without help. Their children are more likely to be obese and have elevated blood lead levels than those in high-income families. Structural inequality seems to be worsening. Between 1979 and 2007, after tax income increased 275% for the wealthiest 1% of households. It rose 65%. For the top fifth, the bottom fifth only increased by 18%. That's true even adding all income from Social Security, welfare, and other government payments. During this time, the wealthiest 1% Increase their share of total income by 10%. Everyone else saw their share shrink by 1% to 2%. As a result, economic mobility worsened. The 2008 financial crisis saw the rich get richer, In 2012, the top 10% of earners took home 50% of all income. That's the highest percentage in the last 100 years, according to a study by economics. Emmanuel says and Thomas Pickey. Now the causes. There are five reasons why low-income families have poor health. More likely to be sick 
A 2013 study found that 25% of low-income families have poor health compared to 15% of the most affluent families. High blood pressure affected 38.6% of the poorest fifth in the study compared to 29.9 of the richest fifth. Now, why do you think that low-income families have the poorest health? For number one, they can't afford the insurance. For number two, they can't afford to go to the doctors. For number three, they cannot afford to stay off of work. So they will work while being ill just to provide for their families. Disparity in care. Low-income neighborhoods may not have nearby access to best hospitals, doctor's offices, and medical technology. This is especially true in rural areas. Southern states also have poor care than northern ones. Why do you think that is? Because there was a time when inner city neighborhoods had hospitals existing within the neighborhoods. The best doctors, um, and you could be in walking distance to the hospital or your doctor's office, but economic blight stepped in, so hospitals began to close. Doctors began to leave due to the patient base, the insurance patient base, which was mainly Medicaid insurance. Now you have to admit that some doctors do not like taking state insurance due to the payment structure of that insurance. It takes a while to get paid. And yes, you will receive little to nothing from the insurance. And also, doctors will do the very minimum. I should say most doctors will do the very minimum to patients when it comes to having state-funded insurance. They will just do enough to get by because they know the more they do, the more they will have to write off in the end for non-covered services. And the same with hospitals. Rising cost of health care. One in five low-income Americans said they went without care because they could not afford it. Only one out of 25 high-income families said the same thing. Without treatment, the poor sick get sicker. 
until they wind up in the emergency room. The rising cost of health care can throw people into poverty itself. A 2018 study found that medical expenses pushed 7 million people below the federal poverty line. Medical bills have become collections agencies' biggest businesses. In 2015, 1 million people declared medical bankruptcy. You know, those with poor health, it can create poverty. Those with poor health are likely to wind up in poverty. It is difficult to find and to maintain high-paying jobs if you are chronically ill. Diseases such as alcohol, or drug addiction, or even lupus can make any continuous job impossible. You know, I had a conversation with someone the other day, and we were talking about how people with disabilities are treated. And I made a point to this individual that society sees those of us with chronic illnesses and disabilities as a burden to society. And they asked me why. I said, even though this is my response. Even though we have worked and we have contributed to society, we did not ask to become ill. We did not ask for our chronic illnesses, be it lupus, be it heart condition, be it MS, be it chronic pain, be it fibromyalgia, be it whatever. We didn't ask for this, but we have contributed into society. And just because we are labeled, society has labeled us disabled does not mean that our minds are not functioning. We can still be an asset to this world and to society by helping others get through their journeys. So we are not a burden to society and never accept anyone telling you or implying to you that you are a burden. Yes, the society will try to do the least they can 
for those of us who suffer with chronic and invisible illnesses. That is a known fact, but our minds are strong and our voices are loud. So we are an asset to society. You know, and another thing, they do not say that when it comes time, when they ask you to vote, they don't look at you as a burden then. Think about it. They need that vote. So yes, you will have some politicians will sit up and say what they will do for those who suffer with chronic illnesses or invisible illnesses when it's time to vote, but when it comes down to getting in office, we all must make them accountable to the promises that they made to get our votes with. So let's get back to it, but I just had to had to tell you that, you know, the sixth cause is that the elderly are more likely to be unwell. They are also more likely to be poor. In 2016, have all people on Medicare had an illness and had to spend out of pocket for either medication, the high cost of the medication, your rent, food, or whatever else, which took away from their economic stability. Now, during this time of the pandemic, the rise in unemployment, there exists a widening gap of inequality in healthcare, we have seen it broadcast all across the news. But the main factor that contributes to this inequality is income inequality in the U.S. And it has grown over the past several decades. And as the gap between the rich and the poor yawns, so does the gap in their health. According to a study published in JAMA Network, the study drew from annual health survey data collected by the CDC and from 1993 to 2017, including around um, 5.5 million Americans ages 18 to 64, the researchers focused on two questions from the survey recommended by the CDC as reliable indicators of health. Excuse me. 
over the last 30 days, how many healthy days have you had? On a scale of one to five, how would you rate your overall health? What they found across all groups, Americans self-reported health has declined since 1993. And race, gender, and income play a bigger role in predicting health outcomes now than they did in 1993. Overall, white men in the highest income bracket were the healthiest group. And actually, what's happening to the health of wealthier people is that it's remaining relatively stagnant. But the health of the lowest income group is declining substantially over time. The researchers looked at differences in health between white and black people and between three income brackets. They assessed the degree to which race, income, and gender influenced health outcomes over time, a measure they called health justice. Finally, they calculated the gap between people's health outcomes and that of the most privileged demographic high-income white Men. Results of this analysis suggest that there has been a clear lack of progress on health equity during the past 25 years in the United States. Income was the biggest predictor of differences in health outcomes. Now, Things weren't all negative on one measure. Disparity between health outcomes for black and white people, the gap between health outcomes narrowed significantly, but gender and race still influence outcomes. Success in healthcare requires organizations to improve quality and clinical effectiveness while decreasing costs. Healthcare organizations must include health equity as a strategic priority, broaden health equity scope, invest in the structures and process 
that improve health equity and dismantle institutionalized racism. In pursuit of health equity, organizations must also provide culturally competent care to many different patient populations who need clinicians to understand their lives, address their population-specific healthcare needs, change practices to be inclusive, collect data in a non-judgmental way, and build trusting relationships that enable them to openly participate in care. Improvement strategies that are driven by commitment to health equity. Now, although the root systemic cause of health inequities and disparities in the U.S. will take time and hard work to eliminate. Systems can tackle their data-exposed inequities with interventions of varying degrees of complexity. From adding non-medical vital signs, such as employment, to health assessments, to forging and fostering community partnerships. Hey, the statistics speak for themselves. U.S. healthcare isn't equitable. Health systems must act promptly and strategically to remedy this nationwide underperformance and demonstrate their commitment to not only health equity, but also health care quality and outcome improvements. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, for another episode of My Story, Living with Lupus. May you have a most enjoyable peaceful, and oh-so-blessed weekend. I'll see you next week for another episode.